we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but they can go wherever our conversations might lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. William Mackis. Dr. Mackis trained as an undergraduate in immunology at the University of Toronto and then did his medical education and residencies at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Mackis practices in the province of Alberta, has specialization in radiology and oncology, and has done extensive cancer research, publishing more than 100 scientific papers in the peer-reviewed literature. William, let's begin. So what have you been thinking about lately? Thank you very much for having me. I've been trying to sound the alarm, um, not just on you know the, the phenomenon of sudden deaths, that uh, we've been seeing, uh, especially in young people, the sudden unexpected deaths. Um, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough has been uh, also sounding the alarm and especially, you know, trying to get, um, you know, a paper published that, uh, you know, we, we co-authored uh, in terms of the autopsies, a review of the autopsies um, that had been done to date in vaccinated individuals and finding upon, you know, uh, independent review that approximately 74% of people who died suddenly who'd been recently vaccinated, the vaccine was the cause or a major contributor to that. Uh, that was um, taken off the server, preprint server by Lancet uh, within 24 hours. So there's, there's, so there's clearly an effort uh, within the medical establishment to suppress uh, this kind of uh, research and and information. And so, um, you know, the finding that most of these sudden deaths are cardiac in nature, but there's also a, a subset of unexpected deaths in, in young vaccinated individuals, which is due to very aggressive cancers. And these cancers have been coined turbo cancers. Um, it is not a medical term. It is a term that has arisen uh, to describe the nature of, of these highly aggressive cancers. They present usually at a very late stage, um, almost always at stage four, uh, sometimes at stage three. Uh, they grow very rapidly. So they surprise the oncologists in the manner in which uh, they grow uh, very quickly, and they metastasize very aggressively as well. And so you, we see these young people presenting in their 20s, 30s, 40s with these highly aggressive cancers. I've diagnosed tens of thousands of cancers uh, in my career with cutting-edge imaging like PET-CT, CT, MRI, uh, with pathology correlation, and I've never seen cancers like behaving like this. Um, well, these are these are surprisingly cancers that like colorectal cancer and things where we know that the normal 
um, time course of the illness is 30 plus years to develop from the initial aberrant cells until the, the transition along all of the intermediate lesions to get to an actual invasive cancer it takes 30 to 40 years. It's impossible for that to occur in a 40-year-old person or a 30-year-old person, basically, unless something has gone haywire in the in the biological surveillance of the can of the cancer that the cancers fight and and win when they actually become actual tumors that the body tries to reject them and get them and the immune system is responsible for that and these are acting like there's been no immune surveillance against them uh, you know and and they're not what one would expect if you expected a vaccine to cause cancers in the in the initial period of after two or three years, you'd see short-lived cancers. You would see recurrence of breast cancer that that's already there but quiescent. You'd see those recurring, and you'd see blood cancers like lymphomas, leukemias that have short latencies. Those are the ones you'd expect to see. But instead, what seems to be happening is this surge in longer latency cancers that can't possibly have occurred in the normal way that cancer occurs. And that's why I think you, you're saying the lay term of turbo cancer, because that's what's, you know, uh, un improbable, unlikely, but uh, what, what's been observed. Am I right about that? Yes, exactly. And and these mainly seem to be breast cancers in women, um, colon cancers. I've seen lung cancers behave very uh, unexpectedly as well. Um, and then you've got sort of cancers associated um with the hepatobiliary system you've got you know gallbladder cancers uh liver cancers um all of these are behaving much more aggressively than expected uh and and it seems that you know their course is is almost like on a compressed time scale and and just very very rapid progression and spread and oncologists uh whenever i see these stories on GoFundMe, because this is where a lot of the information is getting through. It's not coming from the medical establishment, uh, which is basically ignoring this phenomenon of turbo cancers. Uh, it's coming from people themselves or their family members who are posting this on social media, on Twitter. They're posting it on GoFundMe, and they will say, "My oncologist was shocked at you know my this breast tumor growing from one centimeter to ten centimeter in a matter of months." Uh, the oncologist was completely caught by surprise. And so when the oncologists are preparing a treatment course uh, for these individuals, they often have to change the management completely because of the unexpected behavior of these cancers. Uh, so they would have to you know, change the chemotherapy regimen because the tumor ends up being much more aggressive than they expected. Um, and sometimes before the patient can really even start a, or, or finish a proper treatment regimen, they end up dying. So let's say they'll they'll end up dying between diagnosis to death. It'll be something like six months. And it's usually six to 12 months for these um, solid tumors like breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. Uh, now you'd mentioned leukemias, lymphomas. Uh, I am seeing uh, a spike in leukemias as well as lymphomas. I think lymph lymphomas is probably uh, the most common uh, of, of the blood cancers that is spiking. Um, they too seem to be behaving um, more aggressively and have, again, this accelerated course as well. So I'm not sure if there's one process going on, if there's multiple 
pathophysiological processes going on responsible for this, um, you know, initiated by the by the mRNA vaccines. But uh, what shocks me is that uh, other than uh, Professor Daglish, uh, oncologist in the United Kingdom, sounding the exact same alarm, saying that his cancer patients who were in remission, they get their booster shot and suddenly they have a uh, recurrence of their cancers and whether it's melanoma or breast, uh, no other oncologist is, is, is raising the alarm about this, uh, even though oncologists must be seeing this in their practice, but they're just not speaking out. And that's, accounts. It, and that's the most shocking thing to me is that doctors are putting their, you know, their jobs and careers and bank accounts uh, ahead of, ahead of patients. Right. So what made me think in all of this, that what we need is some kind of what I would call an immunogram, which is a composite test of immune function in general ways that at least as part cover the efficacy of immune surveillance for, for cancers. So I'm not an immunologist. I can't speak to, to which parts of the immune system get tested and how they're measured and so on. But but basically, we need to cover you know, 20 or 25 things in the immune system and put together kind of a snapshot measurement of the efficacy or lack of efficacy of those components to know whether people have a damaged immune system. You can measure a damaged pancreas. You can measure measure damaged lungs. Why can't we measure a damaged immune system? That, that's really what we need here. I agree. And But the, the problem is, is that we're not even getting an acknowledgement that there's possibility of a link. And, you know, when I looked at some of the um, documentation that, that Pfizer and Moderna submitted to get approvals for their products, they did not test. They did, they did not conduct any uh, tests for carcinogenicity, for example, or genotoxicity. Uh, they just wasn't done. They just said, well, we don't anticipate mRNA to be carcinogenic in any way, so we're not going to do the studies. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a question of what carcinogenicity means when you have an agent that could disrupt the functioning of normal cells. It's not like, I think of a carcinogen as a toxic molecule, some hydrocarbon or something like that, that intercalates with the DNA or wraps around the DNA and causes a misreading of the DNA and produces an aberrant and toxic genetic code in a cell that then makes the cell go haywire, to speak loosely. And here, what we have is very small, though not zero, but small evidence of these vaccine genetic information getting reverse transcribed into DNA to do that. Yet we have such large behaviors of these turbo cancers that there's got to be some other mechanism, which is why I'm invoking the immune system. So it's not necessarily carcinogenic per se, but an immune damage it's like if you you damage any organ, then that organ is not going to function optimally, and it has consequences for the things that that organ does. Like you damage the heart, you know, and and so on. The brain gets suboxygenated, and and on and on, and sort of the body. So if you damage the immune system, you're going to get consequences for infection, increased risks of different kinds of infections, and increased risks of things that the immune system keeps surveillance on, which is cancers, foreign cells. And so that's why I thought of trying to measure how well the immune system is working or not working in some general way. And this is very entrepreneurial. Somebody could come up with, with some tests and make some money off of this 
you know, if, if they did it. So I'm surprised that it hasn't been done yet. Or maybe it has. I just don't know about it. Um, but it's honestly, honestly, not that I've seen. I, I really haven't seen anyone, um, you know, talk about taking on this kind of research at all. And and clinically speaking, um, you know, the oncologists that I have run into uh, online, like Dr. Gorski from California, uh, they vehemently deny that there is any possibility of a connection between vaccination and then, um, you know, these highly aggressive cancers arising uh, a number of months later. Uh, they well, say, I say, check their bank accounts, see who's paying them to say those things. Exactly. Yeah. So this is one of the, you know, I'm trying to si- sound the alarm on sort of the ground level of really seeing anecdotal uh, evidence uh, of these and again, it's not, these are not rare cases. This, these are not one-offs. Um, you know, I, I can put dozens and dozens of cases together at any given time, uh, and they tend to behave quite similarly. Uh, the lymphomas, you know, the lymphomas also grow quite rapidly. And and another feature of these, of these tumors, um, once they have arisen, right? So we, we know that there is some mechanism, most likely some kind of immune system damage that allows these tumors to arise to begin with. But what's also shocking is that once these tumors have arisen and they're growing, and once the oncologists are aware of it, they they try to start treatments, they tend to be resistant to standard chemotherapy regimens and uh, external radiation treatments so that there's there's also something in the nature of these tumors where they are resisting sort of conventional treatments and they're not responding in the way that they should. Um, and this is, a, again, you know, probably a feature, some, some feature within the tumor itself um, that why why are they resistant to, to treatment? You well, know? because it should be apparent that if their surveillance control is defective, that they're just going to, you know, pro- propagate multiple cellular genetic damages without anything pushing back and yeah and so and so they can damage all the growth regulating uh components of of the cell and and therefore it cells like to reproduce i mean the things the just you know like every organism like viruses like bacteria cells are engineered to reproduce and it's only through adaptive uh, regulation, I think, that the body stays more or less homeostatic and, and stable, even though all of our cells reproduce. You know, I think the gut lining cells reproduce every four days. Uh, other components reproduce a little more slowly. The brain doesn't reproduce barely at all. Nervous tissue doesn't reproduce barely at all. But every cellular component in the body, at some rate, reproduces cells like to do this and so the, the the more restrictions you remove the faster and more aggressive the, the reproduction becomes which means that that when oncologists are faced with this situation of a turbo cancer um and they apply standard treatment protocols to it they're actually not addressing the underlying cause um which again would be the damaged immune surveillance uh you know if and if i guess if you're not addressing the damaged immune system then even if you hit these cancers with chemotherapy or you hit them with with radiation 
they're like you said, they're probably going to just come right back uh, and continue growing because you're not addressing the underlying problem, which is, you know, for the lack of better term, a damaged immune system that is offering no resistance to the growth of these cancers. Right. And it, it surprises me that chemotherapy even works because chemotherapy itself can damage immune function and, and likely does, uh, at least transiently. And yet chemotherapy does have efficacies depending on regimen and, and tumor type. So uh, it's complicated. And I would think that the, the only solution to these is, is surgical resection, you know, where that's possible at all, or if it's possible to shrink them, you know, with radiation or something, and then uh, remove them surgically. That, the that's... problem, and you see, and, and, and that's exactly the problem, is that we're not catching them fast enough. Right, like right now, um, if if these tumors present at stage four, that means they've metastasized. Yeah, that means a surgical resection at that point is not going to make any difference because you you can resect the primary, and you've got tumor spread already elsewhere. Uh, so that's not going to address the problem either. So so we would probably need to uh, upgrade our our screening processes um, in the vaccinated um, to try to catch these tumors at an earlier stage where they could be resected. And again, that's not being done either. Right. And I think this would be a major industry. There's too many people and we have no indications that you're going to do screening tests and our screening tests aren't sensitive. No, our cancer detection tests are not sensitive and specific enough to use as screening tests that wouldn't freak out half the population thinking they might have cancer. Uh, yeah. Just not a practical solution. We, we are not at that point yet. Um, yeah, and 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 because there's no acknowledgement uh, that vaccinated individuals are at risk of developing turbo cancer, for example, um, then I think you know we're we're already way behind the curve in terms of um, figuring out any kind of screening for for these individuals. Because if 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 the medical community is not um, willing to accept that that risk exists then you're obviously not going to come up with any kind of screening for these individuals to try to catch these cancers early. Uh, so I think we're we're way behind the curve. Um, oncology is is in terrible shape. You know, a lot of the medical specialties, unfortunately, are in, in bad shape. Uh, obviously, you know, in cardiology, you've got Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Asim Malhotra, you know, who are seeing the cardiac damage. They are sounding the alarms. Um, so at least, you know, the cardiologists are seeing problems, uh, in the vaccinated, but in terms of oncology, I feel like I'm, you know, John the Baptist <laughs> you know, screaming in the wilderness and no one is listening. Right. You know, I mean, I, I will get, you know, interviews and acknowledgement, you know, from Epoch times, you know, or, or from colleagues like yourself, but, you know, in terms of my oncology colleagues, mainstream media, there, there's just absolutely no acknowledgement of a problem. And, and that's really frustrating for me. It is. Well, so we're getting to our commercial break point. So uh, let's come back to this. So everybody will be back shortly. Please stay tuned. 
World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. William Mackis. We were just talking about turbo cancers and the excessive numbers uh, of cardiac events that have occurred in the last few years and sudden deaths, especially in, in young people. And one of the things that I've been thinking about in the sudden deaths in young people is that are basically cardiac failure, uh, sudden cardiac failures, is that maybe an unreasonable proportion are in people who are in very high activity, either occupations or have that as part of their life enjoyment, physical activity. And so, of course, people who are professional athletes have lots of popular media coverage. And so when things happen on the playing field, it's obvious that something's going on. And so that that becomes reported on. But if you look at, for example, the uh, people, the doctors, for example, in Canada who've died at young ages, and there's been collections of, of these reports, you see um, people who are marathon runners and, uh, you know, uh, do lots of physical activity for hobbies and so on and push their cardiac limits as part of their life enjoyment activities. And I even it came to me the other day that a colleague of mine said his brother, who's a doctor, who's um, a, a professor of, of something of, of, of medicine and a very highly regarded um, clinician and researcher who jogs uh, a few miles a day, five or six times a week in great physical shape, had a heart attack, a sudden heart attack, and was resuscitated and, and made it through the process barely, you know, six months after being vaccinated, and refuses to accept that his heart attack was caused by the combination of vaccination and high physical activity. And I'm thinking that exercise-based ventricular, cardiac ventricular hypertrophy is are, are both risk factors for this unusual cardiac event that basically what's happening is if you have these microscars in cardiac muscle, it creates aberrant pathways for the cardiac impulse to travel through the heart. 
And at some point, kind of randomly, when the heart is exercising, that something trips up the, the impulse that stuns the heart, so to speak, and it can't figure out how to get back into normal sinus rhythm. And then that's a positive feedback of lack of oxygenation, which makes a problem worse, or they go into uh, ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation and, and so on, and there's your heart attack. And so this is a recipe for doing that, especially in people with these high activity states. And so vaccinated people should be warned not to do such great physical exertion for at least a year after the most recent vaccination, in my opinion. I've been tracking the deaths of Canadian doctors um, for almost two years now. Uh, sudden deaths, uh, young practicing Canadian doctors. And this is, I saw this pattern among the Canadian doctors. Now, the Canadian doctors uh, are all vaccinated because you can't work in Canada unless you are, you're vaccinated. And most of them are actually keeping up with the Health Canada uh, recommendations, which at this point, I mean, you have to be on your sixth shot uh to be in line with health canada regulations because health canada advises you to take these booster shots every six months uh so we have a lot of canadian doctors who've had four shots five shots or six shots and the pattern that i noticed um and i've tracked approximately about 180 sudden deaths of canadian doctors the pattern that i noticed was that there are at least three triathletes who were doctors who died uh suddenly um, one of them actually collapsed during a triathlon that she was participating in, in the swimming portion, which again, seems to be sort of the highest risk of the activities, you know, the activities being swimming, cycling and running swimming seems to be the highest risk of those three activities. She collapsed in the swimming portion. And interestingly, she had collapsed, uh, shortly after the second booster shot had been rolled out in Canada for healthcare professionals. And that summer, this was the summer of 2022, when that second booster shot was rolled out, three doctors, Canadian doctors, died while they were swimming, uh, which is which is incredible. You know, to me, again, it's a, you know, sort of a red flag, a signal. There was a, a, a former Olympic uh, athlete, an Olympian. Um, I believe his specialty was, was sailing. He was, you know, he was in the Olympics, uh, you know, maybe a decade or two ago. Uh, Dr. Paul Hannum, an emergency a doctor from Toronto, and he was jogging and he collapsed and died suddenly at the age of 50. And there's more stories like that. You've got cyclists, uh, doctors who are, are avid cyclists. There was actually a cardiologist in Quebec um, who was participating in a 100-kilometer cycling competition who collapsed during the cycling competition and died. Uh, you've got hikers. You've got... Uh, you know, there, there's two doctors who've died, uh, one on Mount Everest and one on K2 on, on mountaineering uh, expeditions. Now, I've gotten uh, a lot of pushback on this saying, well, you know, they probably had an accident and how dare you suggest that the vaccine might have had anything to do with it. And to me, it's it's a very logical, um, you know, it's a very logical assessment of risk where if you've got doctors who are collapsing with all of these activities and there was another doctor who died from cross-country skiing as well while he was cross-country skiing so if you've got doctors collapsing while they're swimming running hiking cycling you know it's not a stretch to imagine that a similar process might have happened you know if, if they're climbing a mountain even though you know mount everest and k2 obviously are high risk 
of climbs to begin with. But this is where I, I've seen this pattern. And these are, you know, these are, again, these are athletes. The, these are high level athletic individuals. You know, they're no longer competing professionally um, other than maybe the triathletes, but it, it's just same kind of pattern, same kind of collapse. And these collapses usually tend to be fatal. Well, right. And so this is my point that these are not just your average heart doing its average thing, you know, and being struck down by something going wrong. These are people who built up their heart capacity and who basically have a much stronger, more capable pump in their heart, in the heart muscle. And that which normally you'd think, oh, that makes them even healthier and more capable of responding to problematic issues. But it turns out to probably be the exact opposite. It puts them at greater risk, especially during these endurance activities. It puts them at greater risk of one of, of these malfunctions occurring. And, um, it, you know, it's the exact opposite of what one intuitively would, would think. But it it's the, seems to be the reality of, of what people have observed, and it's not just in Canada. When um, in all of my adult life, I have only known one person who died suddenly. It was a faculty member at Yale, and maybe twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, who was in her forties. She seemed to be in good health. There was nothing that I knew of about her, and then I suddenly find that. She's deceased. You're coming to work and I've been told that she died. And this is the only case I've ever heard of in, in my medical or academic career. And yet, this is routine today, you know? And um, it's just uh, part of the problem. This is a greater problem than just sudden deaths now and during COVID. It's a, it's a much bigger problem with medical gaslighting that's been yeah. going on for forever. And... I, I don't know if it's just doctors don't like taking responsibility for hard problems. They want to solve the easy problems and push off the hard problems to somebody else, you know. But if but if if I were in active clinical practice and I treated a patient and it didn't work, you know, I would come back to the patient and say and be honest and say, well, I tried. This was my best guess, and it didn't work. So we'll regroup and and try something else, you know, as opposed to, well, there must be something the matter with you. And uh, it's not in my specialty, so go see somebody else. You know, or yeah. it didn't really happen; it's just in your brain, and, and and on and on and on. Yeah, and doctors must be seeing it in their clinical practice. Um, before I, you know, made my clinical practice uh, oncology, I actually conducted cardiac stress tests uh, in my earlier career, um, either with with treadmill or diprotomal. Uh, and again, you know, I had heard of maybe one person collapsing. Uh, and dying suddenly during uh, a cardiac stress test, for example, it, it was very rare. Um, and to see it now at, at such a high frequency. And then the other category I was going to mention is the sudden deaths in the sleep while a person sleeping, you know, and usually occurring uh, in the early morning hours. And they're usually found in the morning by their partner or by their children. And they're either in, in you know, like a ventricular fibrillation, for example, uh, so they're unconscious and they're in a in a heart rhythm like this, or they're they've passed away. Uh, and again, these are occurring at, with a frightening frequency in young individuals. Something that again I had really not seen 
in my career when I was dying when I was diagnosing cardiac issues. Uh, so the gaslighting is 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 uh, just shocking and unfortunate. It is possible that these are not occurring at a high enough frequency to alert every practicing physician in their practice that you know look there's something happening and it's in the vaccinated population. So I'm willing to give some slack to to physicians in terms of maybe you know if it's only a 20 30 40% increase they may not see it right away but there is so much information now on social media in terms of um you know us us raising the alarm um you know other physicians researchers raising the alarm anecdotal stories of of people you know that it is hard to me at this point to be a physician and and really not be aware of of this phenomenon uh you know these sudden cardiac arrests uh that's happening so you know some doctors may be seeing a lot of it in their practice some may not be seeing as much of it in their practice but i think it's hard to claim ignorance uh at this point of of this of this problem so we've got sudden cardiac arrests and we've got turbo cancers we also knew that there were clotting issues and certainly doctors have been treating clotting irregularities post vaccine in lots of patients and that's something you can measure you can measure the clotting yeah. system and and decide to treat that more aggressively to prevent you know things clots that are, that are clinically significant and um so that's the problem is, is the problem is, is that there's gaslighting there too because whenever I bring up uh, a sudden death of a young woman in her 20s, in her 30s, um, and it ends up being um, on autopsy, it ends up being pulmonary embolism, for example, the first reaction I get is, well, she was on birth control uh, and probably, and that's probably the cause of the pulmonary embolism. And it's yeah, like, okay. well, but that, that we know that it's smokers in their 30s who are at increased risk of pulmonary embolism. Okay. So these are women and they're non smoking women in their 20s. Yeah. Okay, so they're missing. But the gaslighting is is there as well when it comes to the clots as well. Uh, you know, the gaslighting and 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 Dr. Charles Hoff in Canada, you know, raised concerns early on about uh, clotting in his vaccinated patients, and he started doing D-dimers, and he started seeing abnormal D-dimer levels in his patient population, uh, and he was viciously pursued by the medical establishment, by the medical boards, the the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia. He wrote a letter. To the Minister of Health of British Columbia, and he basically lost his practice uh, for sounding the alarm for, on clotting issues. Um, so it's it's we run into the same exact problem. You try to bring this up, and you're you're risking your career for for even mentioning mentioning it. So you have to be publishing these things anonymously, like some of the Europeans have been doing that. Okay, interesting. You know because they know that. The whistleblowers get punished for the crimes that they're blowing the whistle on. Yeah, you know the the, the people are going to protect their criminal behavior by trying to damage the whistleblower. Yeah, and anyone who speaks up, it, it, it's basically a career ender. There's, you know, there's no way that you can sort of speak up, you know, be a whistleblower and then move on to another job. At least not in Canada. You know, it might still be possible in the United States, but it is definitely not possible in places like Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, 
um, where the medical tyranny is just completely out of control? Well, I would say it's not just a medical tyranny. It's the World Economic Forum tyranny that's infiltrated all of those governments. But that's a political question. Um, I, I understand. And this is, you know, a big issue of, about how people can get medical care that is actually paying attention to them and not the the corporate organizer of the medical system that tells the doctor what they can and can't do. And we're stuck in this downward spiral because trust in the medical uh, community has been lost. I think by the majority of the population have lost trust in their doctors completely. And they see their doctors recommending these products. They see their family members being injured or dying. They see themselves being injured. And they see that the response of the doctor is, uh, now that you're injured, I'm going to ignore your problem or I'm going to call you crazy. Uh, And now... So the trust has been lost, and yet we're now being pushed uh, again into another, you know, pandemic 2.0 scenario. We've got new variants that are being pushed. Uh, we've got uh, again a renewed push for the entire population to get their booster shots. I know this is uh, being pushed in uh, the United States and Canada as well to go get your booster shot in the fall, and and so on. It's almost as if, as the, as if they're like the last two years haven't happened. That there's been no injuries, no deaths. And we're playing pandemic, this pandemic game all over again. Uh, it's just it's it's sickening uh, to see. Well, I think that Americans have gotten pretty fed up with the booster every two months idea that the boosters don't, you know, what they do last very short amounts of time if they do anything, which they probably don't at this point. And um, we're actually getting to another uh, break time, so why don't we take a, a break here? And uh, we'll come back in a moment. So everybody, please come back. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. William Mackis. We were just talking about what the push is to try to revaccinate the population this fall. And and in my opinion, I've spoken about this before, but in my opinion, when you see all of this spurious propaganda of the scariant of the week, look, it's got 30 mutations, you know, you should be afraid, you know, that, that in fact, that there's only six or nine or 12 cases known in the whole world, and it's not reproducing widely, and nobody's, you know, going to hospital with it and uh, or dying from it then you know that this is a fear campaign in preparation, laying the groundwork for selling something based on the fear. And of course, the something is a new booster being rolled out in another week or two or three, which is going to be out of date. It's already out of date. That booster will not deal with the so-called scary and the variant that's out there that isn't reproducing anyway. It won't deal with the real one that will be needed in another week or two, which is the FL.1.5.1. 
and uh, and uh, of course all of the the vaccination across the the, the world has only encouraged the, the virus to mutate more and the, of course more might not be really that important a concept because this is what viruses do anyway and since the virus has already reached its optimal niche of minor signs and symptoms for almost everybody you know that 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 basically uh, viruses don't want to be toxic and and destroy people because they don't reproduce that's the end stage for the virus what viruses do best is not keep people at, keep people at home that they get people to w- go to work and socialize and do all their normal activities while they're sniffling coughing sneezing and so on but not so sick that they have to stay home and can only infect their family members and so because yeah. of that you know that the, the optimal niche which opt um omicron reached in december a year ago year and a half ago um is where we're at now which is the common cold version of things the the uh, you know the mild influenza version of things well i see i see efforts uh, both in the united states and canada to sort of re remarket and repackage the idea of boosters uh to say well look uh you know people don't like taking boosters every you know two three months or even every six months i mean it, it it's ridiculous um booster uptake has crashed uh in canada uh i believe less than six percent of canadians have taken a booster shot in the last six months so demand has cratered uh, i think most people are kind of fed up with this concept of endless boosters but i do see an effort to sort of rebrand and almost rehabilitate uh, the image of of the COVID nineteen vaccines, and so now they're telling us, well, it's not going to be a bivalent shot anymore. We're back to the monovalent shot, and it's not a booster anymore. It's now part of your seasonal, uh, you know, seasonal vaccines, right? Just like the, your annual flu shot, you're going to have an annual booster shot, and so it's a it's a rebranding, right? It's it's this kind of a rebranding uh-huh. attempt to get people to come back and and start taking these shots again. But the flu shot, the annual flu shot has failed. That uh, 10 years ago, the flu shots had some 50, 60, 70% efficacy, if not in reducing transmission and reducing severity of illness. That is a reputation that's been largely lost. Now they're down in the 20 to 30%, 40% range. And it's unclear whether they really provide a tangible benefit anymore. And this is, you know, after 20 years or more of, 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 everybody getting flu shots or at least all older people getting flu shots you know and what is the law of diminishing returns and so given that people are now waking up to the fact of why bother with a flu shot you know i'm probably better off if i've got signs or symptoms of the flu of squirting some um povidone iodine saline nasal spray and gargling you know, four or five times a day, you know, as soon as I detect symptoms for, for three days, whatever, and headed off that way, then I am taking a flu shot. And that's yeah. all over the counter. Or taking some zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, vitamin D. Um, and, you know, but what I see also is that um, there's going to be a push to replace the flu vaccines with mRNA flu vaccines. Uh, I believe that's where we're kind of on the cusp of of that being rolled out 
uh, in the population. We've got the push on the RSV vaccines as well. Uh, and again, I know that uh, the RSV vaccine that was recently approved, I don't believe is an mRNA platform, uh, right. but, I, but but they are working on an mRNA platform, RSV as well. And, and I saw last year, uh, they were almost, you know, testing this idea of, of a triple vaccine for what they call the triple demic, right? And so you, you had this idea that, you know, it's not just a flu season anymore, right? Now you've got RSV going around, you've got influenza going around, and you've got COVID going around, you've got a triple threat or a triple demic. And so you need a, you know, a triple vaccine for that. And the vaccine, again, is going to have COVID, it's going to get influenza, it's going to have RSV, and probably... Uh, they're they're all going to be probably mRNA, uh, and so again, this might be something that uh, they'll kind of try to get out there uh, to again. I, I I see this this really this attempt to rehabilitate the the mRNA platform, which to me is a complete failure. The mRNA mRNA platform has failed. Uh, you know, packaging well, mRNA in lipid nanoparticles is dangerous. Uh, you get this uncontrolled systemic delivery of the mRNA. And we've been told by the Moderna CEO, Stefan Bansell, that he's going to use the same exact technology for all other vaccines going forward, whether it's the influenza mRNA vaccine or RSV. They plan to use the same exact technology. They don't plan to change anything. Well, speaking as devil's advocate, could one address whether the great majority of the toxicity of the COVID vaccine was because of the spike protein itself as opposed to the mRNA, the um, nanolipoparticle delivery system. The, that delivery system does get the vaccine around everywhere to the various organs of the body. But if the contents weren't so damaging and so long-lived, would it really do as much damage as it has? Is this the spike protein that's really the problem here? I don't know. Um, you know, that's I think that's the big question. Is it is it specifically the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 that is that is the problem uh, or is it really any any protein that's going to cause you know a similar immune response just because of the nature of the systemic delivery uh, of it uh, and I, I I don't think that answers I, I don't think that question has been answered well it has uh, but it's not in humans it's in veterinary science mm -hmm. that the Moderna vaccines have been mRNA vaccines have been used for a long time and and by farmers and, and agriculture and, and so on. And my understanding is that they've largely failed, that they that they last for at most a year, and and that's as long as the immunity is gained and, and and then they fail. And I don't know what toxicities they've done because I don't think they do animal studies of toxicity in animals. So um, it's hard to know exactly. And of course, there's no honesty whatsoever in this field. Right. As there's right. never been honesty in vaccines, never. Yeah. And honestly, you know, I mean, that may be another uh, selling point for new mRNA vaccines is they might come out and say, look, uh, we acknowledge some issues, but it's an issue limited to the spike protein. And, and you know, we didn't know at the time and we had the best of intentions. And now, look, now we're using a different protein, uh, whether it's, you know, an influenza protein or, or an RSV protein. And look, these are not... Uh, you know, these don't stimulate that kind of, uh, you know, immune reactions. Uh, and so don't worry, these are now safe and effective uh, where, you know, the COVID vaccines may not have been as safe as initially sold to us. So that could be another 
uh, almost a, a marketing point um, for for new products. Uh, so you know, again, like I, you said, I would say, um, once burned, twice careful. Exactly. I I honestly I don't trust I don't trust uh, Pfizer. I don't trust Moderna. I don't trust the FDA. I don't trust the CDC. Um, you know these these institutions in the states. I don't trust Health Canada. Um, you know all these processes, unfortunately, have been compromised. No, they've all flagrantly lied. That it's not just a matter of of bad science. They've done bad science, <clears throat> lots of bad science, lots of incompetent science, but they've also lied. Yeah, and and uh, it's so it's not it's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of they're brazen. They don't care that they've lied. They don't care that they're incompetent. They think they have the authority to do whatever they please, and therefore, and what they please is what keeps them afloat. And the toxic aspects of these agencies is their so-called charitable arms, the, the foundation for the CDC, the foundation for the FDA, where huge amounts of money, billions of dollars are funneled to these agencies to control them, you know, that money serves more than buying something of a normal uh, product. So for example, advertising dollars serves more than to buy advertising time and media. That that money in its scale serves to control the messages of the media much more generally. And the media become addicted to that income and become dependent on it and therefore controlled. And this is not just lay media, medical media, medical journals are all pharma controlled to the degree that they all have pharma support. So there are some journals in esoteric fields where pharma is not interested. They're a little bit less biased. But all the ones that have medical implications are pharma controlled. Their publishers, even those journals, the, those esoteric journals, may be in publishers that have other journals that are much more medically related. And so the publishers are controlled by that the pharma interest, the pharma payments for advertising and journal editors support and, and so on. So the whole system is rigged. Yeah. You know, you know and, and, and I ran I ran into this issue in Canada when I try to alert the Canadian Medical Association uh to the sudden deaths of Canadian doctors. And I've sent them, you know, the the, the information. I've sent them uh, the the names, the photographs you know all the information about their deaths they've never responded to me and when they 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 came online and they said well this is disinformation there's no evidence that doctors are be, have have been harmed by the covid vaccines and keep taking your booster shots that's our position canadians should keep taking their booster shots and then you look at the canadian medical association has a journal called the canadian medical association journal it gets sent to every doctor in canada the back of that journal has a full page pfizer ad and they run these full page Pfizer ads on a regular basis while their own physician members are dying suddenly and they will not say a word. They will not even look at it. They've hosted physician wellness conferences where not a single word is uttered about Canadian doctor sudden deaths. Uh, so, you know, big, big problem in Canada in terms of institutional capture. Right. These are all monopolies. Basically, what's happened is that the monopolies in uh, capitalist life in Western countries have died. Uh, what we call crony capitalism has replaced capitalism. And these monopolies have taken over because either the monopoly, anti-monopoly laws that we had were not strong enough or they weren't enforced and our or our governments were in bed 
with the corporations. Their their PACs were getting funded by these corporations. And so none of them would stand up. You know, there are 21 uh, doctors, at least in the last Congress, there are 21 doctors in, in Congress, and not one of them stood up. Rand Paul a little bit um, right. stood up for anything about early treatment. Okay. We know that early treatment works very well to keep people from dying. The hydroxychloroquine ivermectin, in spite of the massive scale of propaganda and the lies that were put out from that, that are still there, the FDA's webpage on on warning hydroxychloroquine causes cardiac arrhythmia should not be used in outpatients. That is a complete lie. And they even say it's a lie in the warning where below it, it says we base this information from one study in hospitalized patients, which is absolutely irrelevant because if they had data on on outpatients, they would have said the data on outpatients. They don't even have data on outpatients, and yet they mount, the, mount this massive lie that the, the, I, this is our government lying to us right in our face and yeah. thinking that people can't tell that this is a lie and so on. You know, the CDC does study after study after study using a cross-sectional study design and analyzes it as if it's a case control study and thereby by inflates vaccine efficacy 50, 75, 100% from using the wrong calculations in the studies. And you have, you know, 25, 30, 40 scientific authors in these papers, including epidemiologists, CDC scientists, signing off on these papers that are completely epidemiologically incompetent. And, and, and this has been pointed out and what do they do? They call in an outside consultant to rearrange the deck chairs, saying we haven't been, we have not been communicating well enough, you know, with our constituents. The, this is utter nonsense. These are brazen and incompetent people. And I uh, like to point out, as much as, as I'm sad to point out, what happened in Hawaii, the incompetence in Hawaii is just characteristic of the incompetence across the Western world. Of government employees are incompetent. And we see this with with a government employee in Hawaii who says, "I'm going to have to consult with the water gods before I can release the water." And five hours go by when the people had been actually fighting successfully at the beginning, and the water was turned off, and they were unable to fight the fire, which then just blew away that part of Lahaina. Um, that and then you had the police. We have active actual reports of the police setting up roadblocks on the one road out of Lahaina the one paved road out of Lahaina, turning around people trying to escape the fires and telling them, no, they couldn't. This is massive government incompetence. These people, the government, uh, the governor of Hawaii should resign in shame. This is an absolutely incompetent government bureaucracy and and has no business doing uh, uh, administrative tasks for for the people that, that they are serving. And, and this is what characterizes the incompetence in our bureaucracy today. It's not just that, that the administrative bureaucracy has gotten so bloated and, and self-content that it does whatever it wants. In doing whatever it wants, it's incompetent. It just does not know how to do proper things properly. And these these things, that, the examples that I've shown are just a tip, the drop in the, in the bucket of all of the incompetence that these agencies represent. And... You know, and so it, the gaslighting is not just on doctors who've been corrupted. It's everywhere in our administrative life. The elites are not doing their jobs. They have records on paper showing that they're supposed to be able to do their jobs. And in situ, in their real jobs, they basically make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And when it comes to people's lives, 
that you know I, I don't really care if the price of stamps goes up you know five cents or seven cents because the, the post office can't figure out how to be economically efficient i care about when people die because somebody is telling them no you're not allowed to escape the fire and you have to stay in your area even though you're basically jumping into the ocean and the, and things in the ocean are burning too because the fire is so hot you know this is just it's a it's an a, a absurd place that we've gotten in our our society where the government is so incompetent you know we never thought good enough for government work was was the, you know my saying that people say because they don't expect government to be that competent but we don't expect government to be making things worse rather than than nothing at all and that's what we've seen in real life yeah i agree we we, we have a huge problem with an incompetent and corrupt bureaucracy in canada all throughout healthcare um, I just think of, you know, a, a, a simple example, uh, you, you know, we had this uh, scientific advisory group in Alberta for, uh, run by Alberta Health Services. These are all bureaucrats. Some of them are doctors, some of them are not. And one of the early recommendations that they put out in the pandemic was that vitamin D is useless in <laughs> in, 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 in COVID-19. I, I, I'm, I'm not joking that they literally put out a paper uh, a recommendation saying don't 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 use vitamin D, don't bother vitamin D because because it has no effect on 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 COVID nineteen. Um, you know, even well, the Royal Society, you know, uh, in, in England, the scientific body, the ancient scientific body in, in UK, put out a report saying uh, non pharmacological interventions in COVID all work wonders. That masking and, and distancing and staying at, and being locked up, you know, all prevented people from getting COVID and dying from COVID. And they just cherry picked the evidence. There's been four or five reports now taking apart their paper showing how they cherry pick the evidence these are people who are supposed to know better and are and are just idiots they're, they're just absolute they're they're morons and no one has been held accountable i can right. tell you in in canada no one's been fired for uh, their incompetent decisions during the pandemic uh, let alone the, the prime minister yeah well i know so so basically you end up with bureaucrats who completely fumbled the pandemic response, um, you know, to put it nicely. And these people have kept their jobs and now they are literally leading us into potentially another pandemic with the same nonsense, reinstating mask mandates. Uh, God knows if, if, if lockdowns are coming our way uh, in the next few weeks or months, uh, they probably will in Canada. If, if you see it happening in Canada, you know it's coming your way in the United States well, too. to be honest, I think the population is not going to take it anymore. I think that I they, hope so. You know, I Canadians so. uh, classically. I lived in in Toronto for eight years, and classically, Canadians are construed to be more civil than Americans, more docile than Americans, and so on. I don't know if that's true going forward. Now, I think people are fed up, and I think that we're not going to take it, and we're just not going to mask, and we're not going to do things in general life that we were pan fear porned to do. You know, three years ago. Well, anyway, we're out of time for today. This has been a lot of fun, this discussion. If you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and please come back again next week. <laughs>